In season six, we're updating many of the franchise reviews we've done over the last few years based on the most recent franchise disclosure document, as well as conversations with current franchisees, as well as franchisees that closed down or had a successful exit from that franchise system. We've received a ton of insights, oftentimes off the record, from franchisee brands of anywhere from five locations to a thousand plus locations in the United States, as well as abroad. We continue to interview franchisor founders, CEOs, as well as franchisees for some of the most compelling franchise opportunities for 2023. Stay tuned to season six of Franchise Finance. Yeah, Patrick Fenoro here, co-founder at Vetted Biz. Excited to have on John Austinson. Um, he's a franchise consultant. Uh, he was a franchise executive at a pretty sizable brand. John, awesome to have you on today. Yeah, Patrick, appreciate you having me. Looking forward to our conversation. We were having a great conversation prior to uh, hitting record here and uh, for a dive in deeper. So, John, tell us how you got into franchising. Yeah, I stumbled into it. I... Um, like so many of your listeners had spent most of my career in the corporate world and had a good run, but had that itch to do something a little bit different. And uh, so left the public company world just six years ago. So not, not too long back and um, came in and had the opportunity to lead the shelf genie franchise organization, uh, supporting our owners across North America day to day. And uh, for me, it was eye opening experience in this world that I've now dubbed non food franchising. Um, but ended up partnering with founder Alan Young. We spun off, we've invested in franchises ourselves, as well as with other partners. And, uh, you know, for the most part, have good people, you know, running those businesses for us and allows me to spend most of my time helping others do the same now playing a matchmaker. I like that you, you know, you do what you preach because like a lot of people in the franchise space, like they're selling opportunities, but they're not investing. They're, they're putting their, their capital elsewhere and they're, yeah. and they're not actually doing what they, what they, uh, what they're preaching. Maybe just tell me a little bit about the investments you, you've currently done with your partner and how that's structured, like finding the day operator and everything. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, the, the niche, again, Shelf Genie is custom pull-out shelving for kitchens and pantries, property services. That's the space that I've got some background in and, and kind of understand a little bit more and just like some of the mechanics behind it. So, you know, I've invested in pool cleaning, home cleaning, carpet cleaning, um, had a mosquito business for a little while, all under different franchise brands. Um, the one that I'm probably most excited about right now is called the Driveway Company, and it's uh, a niche player out there, but it's got a great name, the Driveway Company, and uh, we've got that and Soft Rock, which is kind of a sister brand to it. And um, no, you know, lots of lessons learned. It's not like we figured everything out day one, but um, you know, it, it comes down to having good people, good people, good partnerships, good agreements up front. Um, you know, and what we found is there's so many folks out there that love the idea of stepping in or running a business. At the same time, you have a lot of people with capital on the sidelines. Um, and so trying to marry these two, um, it's kind of been you know, a lot of beta testing on our part. But no, it's worked really well. Uh, you know, The guy that runs the driveway company for us, 27 years old, he was a CPA, no background in concrete. And uh, you know, it was tired of you know, living in a cubicle five days a week uh, over five years. And so um, anyway, he's jumped out there and really just done a great job growing the business. And we've acquired other franchise locations since then, kind of given them an exit, allowed us to expand our footprint. And so it's been fun. We've done everything from sponsoring a NASCAR and wrapping it with the driveway <laughs> company to uh, you know, just having team lunches every month. Just having a good time with it. But yeah, it comes down to having good partners and then good alignment with that key manager that's running the day-to-day, -day, making sure the better 
the business does, the better they do, the better you do, and just aligning your interests. And how did you find that manager? Yeah, we kind of lucked into this one. So, um, yeah, he, he was a the husband of a lady that was working with uh, one of our business partners. So uh, we, we lucked into that one. But, you know, a lot of people don't have that situation or don't have that cousin that's ready to jump from the military into running a business. And so that I'd say, you know, for our clients, that's probably what makes them the most nervous. And we recently partnered with a national recruiting firm that now helps our clients find that general manager. You know, there's a small investment behind it, but they do a good job of you know, doing the the seeking out and the vetting and the interviewing and background checks and then tee yeah, up but good I mean, candidates. even if you're paying ten or twenty k, if you're able to get another hundred k of profit over like a year or two, I mean, it pays for itself. Absolutely. Unfortunately, it's not that much, but it is. You know, I guess you throw it in with the, all the other investments you're making at the start of a business. It's an upfront commitment. That a lot of That's people right. aren't maybe right. willing to take, but like part of that, you know, you said you stumbled into it, but you're you're putting you're probably putting yourself out to, there. Like you have a very big LinkedIn presence. People know you, I'm sure, in your community that you're a franchise investor, franchise consultant, former executive of franchise brands. So you stumbled into it, but like if you weren't making yourself, if if you if people in your community and in your network didn't know that that was a possibility, then like probably wouldn't it wouldn't have been that easy to find that person that was one or two, you know, connections off. Absolutely. No, I definitely make it known out there. We, <laughs> we stay active on social media. We just had our book come out this morning, which I'm really excited about, which I'm happy to share a copy with any of your listeners. And if you come out to FranBridgeConsulting.com, we'll get a free copy to you. Uh, but it's called Non-Food Franchising. So, no, we, we do a pretty good job of letting it be known out there. And we've always networked well. Um, you know, and, you know, my thought is activity breeds activity. The more active you are, the better things happen. You know, and, and so oftentimes in my career, and this is just a good reminder to everyone, you know, I'll be analyzing option A or option B. And then because you've been active along the way, Option C comes out of left field and surprises you. So, um, yeah, it, it pays to stay active, which I know you and your brother are very active yourself. Definitely. Yeah. And letting, I think a lot of what we do is be hyper transparent, even if it's with competitors, because usually there's some, there's some synergy uh, to be had and they do something better than we do. So there, there could be some immediate opportunity right away or, or down the line. I think a lot of people get afraid of like, oh, I don't know if, I, this person should know, but the net positive usually is well worth it. And I even know a franchisor that acquired, which was a competitor. And if he wasn't so open, he wouldn't have known that they were in a situation that they wanted to sell. And it made a lot of sense for, for everyone. But if they didn't have that initial conversation, then it would never have transpired. 100% no. And I love what you and your brother are doing and the way that you're helping so many out there really across franchising. You know, I, I know you guys don't toot your own horn enough. Um, but a really cool way. And, and you've got a book coming out yourself, don't you? Definitely. Yeah. So, um, it's funny, an attorney that I was on his podcast inspired me and he's like, Patrick, like you, you should be an author. You have all this information and like, it would be cool if I could be like author Patrick Fendaro on, on the podcast. I should have done that for you actually as a, as a nice uh, intro, but how to buy a franchise in, in 12 weeks, employee entrepreneur uh, in 12 weeks. So super pumped with that released uh, in, in a month. Uh, well, depending on when this is released, it'll probably be just a couple days after December uh, 15th. So very excited on that. And it was, wasn't that difficult because I've done so many interviews and had it transcribed and have a nice team. Uh, of employees and my father that helped out uh, on the structuring and editing. But more on you. So non-food franchising, make, like, it makes intuitive sense as over half of franchises are not food related. Um, what inspired you to, to write the book and, and spread um, 
all this knowledge that you've accumulated over the years. Yeah, no, of the 4,000 franchise brands in the US, you know, we always have new ones coming online. Like you said, more than half are in the non-food space. And I'd say non-food, non-lodging. You know, I I really go deep in areas like property services and health and wellness and automotive and kids, pets, aging population, all the things that people are willing to spend on regardless of what economic conditions we're in, you know. And so I just continue to hear from my clients and, I think food's a little bit of a different animal. Granted, we need people getting involved in food. That's just not my specialty. And I'd rather, you know, share what I know. And so, and, and my humble belief is there are easier ways to make money, whether it be the capital <laughs> expenses or the operating hours or the employees. I'm happy to go down that path. But, um, you know, I'd say probably 95% of my clients are interested in these other industries, oftentimes in non-sexy, cash-flowing, understandable businesses from insulation to gutters to dumpsters to, you know, I was talking with a client this morning. I mean, we work with a lot of doctors, a lot of lawyers, and uh, a lot of professionals or existing business owners that are looking to expand their portfolio. And, you know, they've got zero background in some of these areas, but then they step and they love concrete paving. You know these businesses that are cash flowing. That um, so I think you know with the the impetus behind the book was you know the educating side. I mean I do some speaking and you know kind of getting the word out there. But the book you know is a way to reach the masses of you know here's other opportunities. I think there's a lot of cash on the sidelines. A lot of people wanting to get in the game. They don't know what that looks like. They haven't thought about franchising because they associate franchising with food. And so um, I just have so many people reach out and say, we wanted to talk with you because you specialize in non-food franchising. Like They're using that goofy sounding term, non-food franchising. So um, really, the book is soup to nuts. It's everything from you know finding the right opportunity to whether franchising is right for you. you know, we compare it versus startups, compare it versus entrepreneurship through acquisition, which is you know, the whole resale side of the business. Um, you know, financials, you know, how does the funding side work? How does item 19 work the whole legal piece um you know and then we talk about strategies too you know whether it be uh, you know your first venture or building out that portfolio we get into case studies of clients of ours that have you know maybe had businesses that are non-franchised and they step into hey let's for this next go round, let's add in a business that is franchised um and then i've got clients that have stuck with franchising all the way through and in some cases as they build out this portfolio they love the fact that these businesses complement each other maybe it's sharing you know marketing on the front end and customer bases and you know, resources Sources on the back end, or maybe they serve to diversify. So again, we share a lot of case studies in the book, helping people understand how it all works. Very cool. I look forward to reading it. Appreciate it. We'll definitely get a copy to you. I read a ton of um, a ton of franchise books before writing my book, and I was surprised the lack of people going into numbers and like citing actual franchise examples. And a yeah. lot of it, I think, part of people buy franchises based on emotions. And uh, like, I think both of us are trying to change that where it's like, no, this is like your life. This is a financial decision and you're going to have to stick with it for some years. Um, So I'm very, I'm very excited to read your book and like learn, learn from you and and how you convey the message on basically helping people's financial future and their lifestyle. Yeah. I know that you're seeing this too. I, I call it franchising as an asset class and it's, you know, it's not going to be the only thing you invest in, but in addition to, you know, hopefully you don't have too much in crypto currently, but, you know, in addition to, uh, you know, the public equities and maybe some private investments and in real estate. And frankly, there are only so many good real estate deals to be had out there right now. Um, you know, what are those other ways to put capital to work? And I think a lot of people want to get into business ownership. They don't know how, just like you guys, you do a great job leading people down that path. 
Well, I'm sure too, like you have some clients that they're, they're them and their spouse are making 300K, 400K, 500K, and there can be some serious tax savings if they're, if they have an operating business and they're not just receiving a W2 uh, paycheck. I call it a trifecta. You know, you get the cash flow going, you're building an asset with an exit value. But then there's also that third piece that you mentioned of being able to write off expenses. And yeah, there's it's one of the few areas the government's still supporting us from a tax policy standpoint would be, you know, small business ownership and just some benefits that go with it. Yeah, there's a lot of ways to to mitigate your tax bill, I guess, on the upfront part and on the depreciation, and then on the ongoing uh, on the ongoing side on the, the expenses. Yeah. You know, and if it's a CapEx heavy business, you know, be able to accelerate the depreciation on the equipment or um, you know, heaven forbid, but maybe you have an operating loss that first year, you know, which is a very real possibility and you know, be able to write that off. And, um, and I've been in that boat, you know, we've had to write off some losses before, but, uh, you know, you, you kind of grind and you know, set it up for the long term. And then on the, so we've, we've compared a lot like the initial investment to the resale value. We're going to be putting that metric out on vetted biz for thousands of franchises. And a lot of the food concepts, especially the resale value is less than the initial investment. So like a Subway restaurant, it's 350K to open their midpoint investment and they're being sold for like 150, 200. And I can imagine the type of businesses your clients are investing in. It's more... I mean, inverted or, you know, there should be a 3x return in year five or year seven. Yeah, no, it's a great point. I think it does vary within food. But, um, no, I, I think in property services, you know, I oftentimes guide clients that that exit multiple is somewhere between 0.75 and 1.25 of sales, which translates to your point to a three to four EBITDA uh, multiple. I, yeah, and there are different factors there. I think the larger the business is, it also commands a higher multiple. Yeah. And it just ends up on more people's radar. You know, if it's a recurring revenue type business, um, you know, a strong franchisor opportunity to scale, buy up additional territories. You know, I think all those go into the, into that price. Um, it, it's interesting. There was a study done um, by the Riker School of Business a couple of years ago where they looked at 2,000 transactions over a 10-year period and compared compared uh, within like-kind industries, both franchised and non-franchised businesses upon their exits. And food was one of the ones they looked at. But what they found was on average, franchise businesses traded at a multiple one and a half times non um, non-franchise. Hmm. Uh, and so really fascinating. I'm happy to share that with you after the show, but please do. Um, yeah. Resellers, you know, those that are looking to buy resales oftentimes do see that value because we both know if you step into a business and it's not a franchise and you're, you're buying a resale, I mean, it's great that, you know, there may be some awareness in the market. Yeah, but like may have the, some dude, the guy was like probably pers- paying people in cash. I mean, at least if you're buying a business down <laughs> yes. in Florida, um, under yes. 500 K under a million, like, they're violating IRS tax law and they're violating, they're violating labor law, maybe 80, 90% of the time. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the, the books are never, you know, <laughs> how do you define the owner's discretionary? And then, you know, you don't know if key employees might leave the next day and then that becomes a ripple effect. If they leave, then they leave. And all of a sudden you're there holding the bag and grand, that's not the case in every situation, but it is a risk you incur for what you see as a non-risky purchase. Uh, versus a new new startup, um, and so I think you know you also could have customer attrition that you know that they never let you on to at the time of the sale either. And so, it seems especially you know, if it's your first time around, like it's generally less capital, and you, you there's more runway to make mistakes. Like with starting a new franchise compared to like buying an existing business, buying an existing franchise where it could be double, triple the cost. And yeah. if you're not on point, you can have like serious issues and start bleeding cash. Hundred percent. No, you and I are aligned on that, and. Yeah. There are exceptions to every rule, but I think yeah. as a general rule of thumb, that's 
that's accurate. And tell me a little bit about the doctors, because I have a lot of doctor buddies here in Miami and they ask me about franchises and I've been hesitant because I know they can do a per diem and get 2000 bucks cash. So if they have a manager turnover, then they're going to have to like not, they're going to have to be like be working crazy hours and they're not going to stay focused on what gives them that yearly salary of say 500K. How yeah. do you handle that with your type of clients that are making, say, over 300K, where they need to protect their hours. How do you deal with those type of clients? Because you have had success, and I think it's a pretty pretty difficult thing to navigate where like not just any franchise consultant can like really plug in and help advise someone like that. Yeah, I think it really comes down to having the right franchise system. And, and just like any industry, I mean, we have a lot of doctors get excited about the idea on paper. And then once they, you know, reality hits, they say, wait a minute, this is not, it, there is too much risk, you know, to my hours because I have very few doctors that are wanting to walk away from their, their core yeah. business. You know, they put in too much training all these years. I mean, most of them are not looking to do that. I did have a Wall Street attorney jump ship last year to, to run a gut business. So, I mean, you do see That's that, awesome. but I'd say in the medical field, I've not seen people leaving and you know, we work with dentists, we work with, you know, orthopedic surgeons, we've got all sorts of physicians, but, and you know, we did a deal last week up in Raleigh and it's a pet related franchise, but it's one that's extremely hands off. And so two doctors went in together. Uh, we've got two clients uh, just up the road from you down in the West Palm area buying a floor coating business. Uh, they close nice. on it next week. And again, they're partnered up. So that defers the, you know. Or, so how does that it, work? Like, are you giving equity to the to the day-to-day manager? Do you have profit share? What have you seen as like the best model for someone yeah. that has significant net worth and significant income and they don't want to, they're trying to be as, as less hands-on as possible? Yeah. So a couple of thoughts around that. So I, I look at our driveway business here. You know, we, we pay a base salary. I think it's 70,000, give or take. Um, you know, to this 27-year-old. And then we provide a quarterly bonus uh, program that aligns both to the top line of the business as well as the bottom line. So it aligns our incentives in him growing the business top line and expanding, but then also, you know, managing the business well from a cash flow standpoint. So the better the business does, the better he does, the better we do. Um, he came to us about a month or two into running the business and said, hey, I like what we're building. Can I buy into some equity? We allowed him to buy into 20% Hmm. equity um, at a discounted rate. And there's a clawback provision. If he leaves in the first year, then he loses equity. If he leaves between 12 and 24 months, he loses half of that. Then a fully vested 24 months. That's an approach I like. What I found is a lot of people want equity. A lot of young folks do. It sounds sounds good, but they don't really want equity. Well, also in this whole startup world, like I I have a lot of friends that went to San Fran and like one of them has been at multiple startups where he got equity, wasn't worse. And like he... It didn't mean anything. Well, but and people want of, that equity, even though you know they're. It's just, it's just people are dying for it, and it might not be the right decision for them, but that's what they want, I guess. I think the core is you know having a good base salary that they can live off of, so they're not totally you know live or die by that. But then also having that upside potential, whether it be through profit sharing or phantom stock, there's a lot of ways to deploy this. Um, it, it is interesting too. People want equity. They want the upside. They want that profit sharing. They don't want downside. If you have to write, <laughs> say there was a lawsuit, they don't want to be a part of that. Cash, you have injection. to cash injections, capital calls. They this don't want to be part of that. This is a very common part of partnerships and it's not a pleasant yes. thing. As long as people are communicating to me, hey, this is what's happening. Yeah. But I don't want to get a surprise. Hey, you need to inject this by this date. 100%. Now, I, you know, one case study, a client of ours, Nathan Bocock, who great guy, around 40 years old, same stage of life, over in Columbia, South Carolina. He's the largest franchisee of two men in a truck moving service. Oh, yeah. 
yeah. operates in like 10 markets. So he and I do about a franchise deal together every year. That's, That's just it. kind of our cadence. And he'll put a young guy <laughs> from his church or his community over the business, you know, kind of that mid 20s. Yes. Um, you know, avatar, if you will. And in his case, he gives them a lot of equity out of the gate because okay. he's already... But there's also known. that trust factor. You, like I, trust I hired one of our key employees, uh, we hired and she brought in another eight people from her church. So it's yeah. like they're shared of values. There's very yeah. close... 100%. 100% you're going to work that. through problems. You're not going to just quit the job. Like you're going to work through it. And I think probably a lot of business partner partnerships go wrong because yeah. one of the partners isn't willing to put in the time and effort to work through it. The, the little exactly. trough. And he'll give them close to 50% equity. You know, mm. And I don't think he minds me sharing that. He, he coaches some of our clients actually, you know, in, in how to go about it. But he's all about giving the equity and then saying, hey, I'd rather have a small piece of a big nut than a big piece of a small nut. Go make us proud. In every case, um, every deal that we've done, he's come back and bought additional locations within the first year. So I, I think that's okay. a testimony to uh, yeah, his I methodology mean, as well. There's one franchise system I won't name, but it's in the in the fast food space where growing, 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 hit up 500 units. One of the multi-unit operators just stopped opening more and everyone else froze and, and the system has just been like that. So, yeah. I mean, that's the biggest testament that he's having success and that the franchise system is having success is where people are opening more territories that they're not obligated to open where maybe mm -hmm. someone bought three territories started and yeah, they're going to push through and open those three. But if they bought one or bought two and they keep opening, like, I mean, that's yeah. people have a lot of choices and a lot of opportunities. And the fact that they they're putting uh, they're putting their their money into that opportunity again. I mean, it's a huge that, that's system. true validation right there. Right. Yeah. And what do you recommend like for prospective franchisees? We have a lot that are listening on uh, our podcast, YouTube channel. How many franchisees, current franchisees, should they validate the information for? Should they talk to former franchisees? How do you approach that process with your clients? Yeah, you know, I let the franchisor take I take a little bit of the leadership there because they know the situations that are most like my clients you know what are those comparable markets similar backgrounds sure. are they you know i'll have clients that are semi-absentee and you know franchise will introduce them to a couple of owner operators i'm like you know so i'll have to intervene sometimes yes. say, no no Amen. give them some semi-absentee but you know i had a client the other day he was at a discovery day this past week for a business he, he's out in new york and you know, I introduced him to Nathan. He wanted to talk to someone outside the franchise system. There was another objective I. And so, you know, I pay Nathan to get on these calls and I pay him a healthy sum, but it's worth every penny. Yeah. And so he got on a call with Nathan and Nathan, you know, said, Hey, here are the things to think about good, bad, ugly, you know, here's how I would evaluate it. Um, so I think sometimes you do need to bring in outside perspectives as well. Obviously working with a good franchise attorney, they're going to point some things out or raise some questions. And so um, the goal is really through the process, Let's give them as much information, which you guys are great about doing this as well. You know, make it as eyes wide open, you know, to, for that final decision to make sure that you're uh, getting into something that's going to make sense. And I mean, my favorite clients are those that are referred by past happy clients of mine, yeah. you know. And so, um, you know, my client's success is everything to me. I mean, that's where I find my validation of what I do. That makes sense. And for the structuring, like I imagine, are they mostly leaning on you or does the franchisor also, you know, suggest like different models or, or even suggest like potential employees to work with your clients that aren't able to dedicate day-to-day uh, -day hours to the business? Yeah, I'd say the more the onus on finding that manager or key employee is on the client side yeah. than the franchisor side. But what the franchisor is willing to do is train those key employees. So as long as my client will pay for the cost of a flight and hotel to send them off for a week of training. And that's what we did with our driveway guy. We sent him out to Waco, you know, had him trained up and um, 
you know, and he came back, you know, fully prepared. And, and the nice thing, and you talk about this on your podcast oftentimes, but, you know, with, with the franchisor, you know, versus just a startup, you know, the running a semi-absentee, the burden doesn't totally fall on you as the owner. You do have that franchisor who's your business partner. That, franch- that, that manager of yours can go to the franchisor for technical questions, for support. They're going to keep them marching in the right direction. So even though you're involved in managing the manager, if you've got a good person in the role, they're going to be able to get a lot of that support from the franchisor. That's a great point because like there's a lot of service-based concepts where the franchisor is handling sales, marketing, and then the day-to-day operator or the franchisee is more on the client service and then like the operations. So mm-hmm. yeah, if it's client service or operations, it gets kicked up to you as the, the majority owner in the franchise. But if it's sales, marketing, or issue with the technology that's used, used for the business, they're going to the franchisor. They're not bothering yeah. you as the business owner. No, totally. And, and, and I encourage our clients, you know, what are those things that you enjoy doing? What are you good at? Like, you know, where in the limited time that you have, where should you lean in? Is it getting involved in the chamber of commerce? Is it you know putting the brand and behind your son's you know little league baseball team and sponsoring them? You know what is it? And I'd say oftentimes it's that community involvement, getting the word out there, the grassroots efforts. You know lowers your, lowers the cost of customer acquisition. You know for for the business. You know, if you get referrals instead of just you know relying on digital marketing, let's say. So you know, I'd say that's oftentimes where we see them leaning in. But then also just you know coaching and holding their manager accountable and having those weekly touch bases and um, you know maybe monthly team meetings where you take them out to dinner and you build that culture and everything else. So um, yeah, when we start talking about that, that's what gets people excited. That's where they want to put their time. That makes sense. Yeah. Where they can have the biggest impact at the end of the day. And usually that they also enjoy it to some extent. Yeah, absolutely. And so, I mean, you probably hear this all the time from, from your clients, your, your current candidates you're helping or your, you know, your former investors, like the one that keeps going to you every year. But, you know, how do you see the upcoming recession or the current recession that we're in? Are there any specific industries that you might suggest uh, clients focused on? Yeah, you know, I'd say I take my, it's not just what I think, but I take a lot of input from different sources. You know, I, I listen to a lot of real estate professionals, a lot of economists, a lot of, you know, just a lot of talking heads too, just to get diverging uh, views on things. So, you know, I think ultimately that people thrive in times of recession and they struggle in times of recession in the same way they do in any other economic client it, it, climate. And I think that for some people, they see it as an opportunity to go out and gain market share. And if others are cutting back on their marketing, maybe we lean in heavy. So I think so much of it comes down to, you know, what's in your head and how you, you approach things. I had a client recently that was buying a business and you know, he, he had three other companies in this area come out and give quotes just to, um, you know, from the same industry to kind of get a feel for, is this an industry I want to be in? And he said, you know, there's only one of the three that would really be a formidable competitor to him in the market. Uh, he's like, but I don't know about that one. I said, we'll go out and poach some of their best people right before you <laughs> launch. And he's like, I like that idea, you know? And so I think there are ways to reframe things. Um, we are in a recession, whether we, or not people agree with it. And, um, you know, I do think as a business owner, again, you have more leeway. Would you rather be drive, flying the airplane or you're riding passenger, even if you're in business class. I mean, I like to have control. I like to be able to set my own prices. I like to be able to, you know, maneuver, be flexible, get lean when need to. Um, so I think for a lot of the right people, regardless of industry, they're going to do well. Um, I do think that, you know, I think fitness is really competitive right now. I think a lot of overlap is taking place. I think what are those discretionary places that people can cut back on versus others? Um, so you, you were saying yeah. fitness, did I hear that as one that maybe to avoid or? Yeah. But, you know, regardless of economy, I mean, people will spend on their homes 
their health, their kids, their pets, and their aging parents. Businesses that cater to those that do a kick-butt job are going to do well <laughs> in times of a recession. And there's going to be an opportunity to lean in and gain market share. This goes back to when I was in the corporate world 12 years ago, where you know, there was a huge cotton crisis. And that impacted the business that, that I was leading. And, and what did we do? We didn't raise prices to the same degree everyone else did, but we raised them half as much. And we gained tons of market share mm-hmm. that made us stronger coming out of the recession. So That was um, at Carter's? Yeah. Yeah, Super Carter's. strong brand. Carter's Oshkosh Bagosh, children's apparel. Yeah. Talk about a career pivot from there to Shelf Genie. <laughs> well, now I'm sure you, yeah. I mean, that's clothing in general is like just a tough business to be in. So I'm sure you prefer the service space that you're yeah. investing and advising your clients on. I do. I do. No, it, it was good for a season and a very long season. We, we had some big successes uh, during that time, but um, you know, lots of learnings that I was able to take with me and yeah, thankful to not be a part of a big corporation anymore. <laughs> and what about the financing side? Like, what do you recommend clients do? Do you work with like an outside um, loan broker or someone that helps with 401k rollovers? What do you, how do you work with clients yeah. on that? Yeah. You know, I'd say about a third of our clients will use cash to fund the investment. Uh, probably a third will use SBA loans. And we do work with Fran Fund is, is our primary lending partner there. They work with franchise friendly lenders nice. as an intermediary. Um, you know, but we don't discriminate. I mean, we work with other lending partners as well, and there's some alternative ones that uh, we have in our back pocket. Franchise, you know, and then I'd say a third of our clients will use, like you said, the retirement self-directed approach, which is called the Rob's plan. Uh, again, we've got some providers that provide that. You know, we also see people tapping into home equity right now using HELOCs. I mean, those rates can be a little bit lower than some others, and you can access them more like a credit line versus hmm. a lump sum. So there's some benefits. Um, and another one, Patrick, that that I, I don't know if you've seen as often, but a portfolio loan. I'm a big fan of this. If you have assets in a non-retirement brokerage account, be able to borrow against those. That's probably going to be your best rate of um, yeah, interest rate. It seems like it's there. very very low rates, despite you know the current environment compared to other yeah. financing mechanisms. Yeah, I mean, I've got one of those. I think I'm paying seven percent now. I was paying two percent a year ago, um, but then I'll either invest those in franchises or in anything that's not a public security. So I do a lot of real estate lending, just personally at you know twelve, thirteen percent rate. So that's a nice carry trade. It's called arbitrage. Absolutely. Yeah, exactly. Absolutely. Well, John, I've enjoyed today's conversation. We've gone through a lot. Um, is there any closing thoughts for for whether it's prospective franchisee? We have a lot of franchisors that listen as well, current franchisees. Any any closing thoughts that that you would like to convey? Yeah, I would just say, you know, from where we sit, I mean, we've never been busier. I think the landscape is extremely active right now. Uh, Q4 is always a big time. Um but I, I'm just encouraged. I'm encouraged for our country as well, despite all the political tensions out there. You know, entrepreneurship's alive and well, and we see the activity on the ground. And I love people's mindset and what they're looking to build. So I'm encouraged, just broadly speaking. And um, you know, if we can ever help in any way, again, our book just came out. So excited about non-food franchising. If you come out to our website, frambridgeconsulting.com, we'd love to get a free copy to uh, to all of your listeners. And uh, again, if there's anything we can do to help, uh, I'm more than happy to. And I really appreciate you having us on the show, Patrick. Really enjoyed the conversation. Oh, John, it was great. We'll be sure to include uh, the link to your book as well as the link to your uh, your website. And again, anyone that wants to get in contact with John, feel free in, in, the, in the show notes to reach out. John, this is great. I learned a lot, um, especially on the structuring side. If I was going to invest and a certain business, um, some different avenues to to look at, as well as for my friends and my network that 
that they don't want to work day to day, that yeah. franchising can be a good option if it's done right with the right business model and then done with ideally someone that's close to you or potentially working with a recruiting company and just making sure it's structured well. Absolutely. Absolutely. No, you hit it on the head. I, I Again, I love the show. Love what you're doing for everyone, Patrick. So uh, keep up the good work. Thanks, John. Appreciate it. I hope you enjoyed today's podcast episode. You can leave us a review if you enjoyed the podcast episode. If you hated the podcast episode, let us know what you thought as well as what future episodes you'd like to hear. Feel free also to drop me a line at patrick at vettedbiz.com and subscribe please to our YouTube channel, Business and Franchise Opportunities by Vetted Biz. This has been Franchise Findings Podcast. Thanks for listening.